Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to Skaboom Stories, which is the audio companion to my new book, Skaboom, an American ska and reggae oral history, now available for pre-sale through the Wolf Publishing House. Now that Skaboom is in production and will be available very soon, I'm sharing a behind-the-scenes look at what readers can expect from the book. In 400-plus pages across 19 chapters, I've attempted to knit together the origin stories of groups of passionate musical pioneers who helped create a uniquely American version of ska and reggae. In this episode, I look at the important role that 171A, a recording studio and rehearsal space in New York City, and a band called the Cooties, whose song Dinosaurs is the episode opening track, had on the birth of the Toasters, and indirectly the New York City ska scene of the early 80s. Like the On Club in Los Angeles, 171A is largely overlooked for its important cultural impact on the musical subculture of New York City's punk and hardcore scene, but in many ways, it was also responsible for bringing together the original members of the Toasters, who all met there or in the various bars that then dotted the East Village of Manhattan. One musician featured in Skaboom, who deserves credit for her contribution to American ska music, is Vicki Rose, the original bassist and one of the founding members of the Toasters. Rose moved to New York in the late 70s to work in the theater, but was soon drawn to the punk rock scene, then in full bloom at CBGB's. After walking into the club one night and seeing the cramps, she ended up being hired to work the front door of the club. Around this time, Rose also met local musician Abe McSpade, who was a popular bartender at the Park Inn Tavern, a well-known musician's hangout. met a guy named Abe McSpade, who taught me how to play bass, and he introduced me to reggae. And, I mean, really rock-steady roots reggae and ska, things like the Mighty Sparrow and the Scottalites and, and that kind of stuff. Way back stuff, 60s stuff. And um, that's the stuff I really, really liked. And the, I, I loved it, as a matter of fact. And I had been a guitar player before, and I had, you know, know how to play piano and all that. And the bass is just great. Don't you love playing the bass? I do. I mean, the bass <laughs> is just, just so like the glue of everything. So, um uh, he taught me to play bass. We were in a New Wave band together, and we had some reggae songs. Rose also told me about Tramps, a club that hosted a reggae party every Monday night that was super influential on her in growing to love the music and also learning how to play the bass. I felt that the artists were each so unique. You know, if <laughs> I mean, the songs, there was such a sense of humor, right? You know, there was a song called Long Shot Kick the Bucket, which is about a racehorse who dies on a racetrack, you know. Right. <laughs> then there's Roach in Mackey Corner, and it's about a song about cockroaches. And then there's a song about freedom. And then there's a song about killing cops. And then there's, it's not unlike, um, you know, early hip-hop, you know, where everything was kind of covered 
I thought there was a iconoclastic. I like iconoclastism, you know, and and that's what I liked about it. I liked that it was independent. You know, in the late 70s and early 80s, musicians were looking to get away from those big record labels. And these guys were making fantastic, um, uniquely produced music in Jamaica that couldn't touch what I felt was being overproduced in American rock and roll at the time. Yes. So there was an organic feel to it that I really dug. And, of course, the bass. The bass in the reggae is just, you know, it. And I had just been taught how to play bass, and it was a really great place to go explore bass. You know, if you want to learn how to play bass, you listen to those reggae guys. McSpade and Rose then started the Cooties, a new wave art band that also featured the Toaster's original drummer, Scott Jarvis. Jarvis shared the origin story of the Cooties and the role that 171A played in their formation. And and you guys all met and started that band um, in the East Village, right? Yeah, actually, uh, we met at uh, uh, where did we meet? I, we met at the Park Inn Tavern. Yeah, the East Village. A friend of mine had a rehearsal studio, recording studio, uh, 171 uh, Avenue A, and right. uh, that's where I met. I think I met the Cooties there because they rehearsed there and uh, they went through a couple drummers uh, before they got to me. I think I was the third. And how um, important was uh, 171A to uh, the the culture that was sort of at that point thriving in the in the East Village? You might say it was one of the hot spots, really. You know. Uh, between here and uh, A7 was kind of a hot spot. Even though we weren't a nightclub, you know, we were, well, it, it had a couple of times as a nightclub, but uh, got shut down pretty quick. So uh, 171 was a rehearsal and recording studio, but just kind of a hangout, especially because uh, a record and magazine store called The Rat Cage was in the basement. <laughs> Great name. <laughs> yeah. And that was an important part because that was a place where people could hang out because they couldn't really hang out in the studio when, uh, you know, a band was rehearsing or recording. And so this um, this space uh, hosted lots and lots of different bands. Is that right? So there, you'd be in there and you would run into other people whose bands were, were rehearsing there or recording there? Well, uh, there was only one. Uh, there was only one room, so it was one band at a time. Okay. And like I say, some bands uh, didn't really care if people hung out, and actually encouraged people to hang out. Uh, it was a big space because it was also, uh, like I said briefly, a nightclub, hmm. right? So it was a big room with a with an elevated stage at one end, and uh, some bands, when they rehearsed, it sort of turned into a party. Other bands, you know, didn't want anybody in there. So it just depended on the band. The Cooties recorded one seven-inch, including the track Waiting on the Fishman, which gives you some indication of their interest in reggae. By the way, the song was produced by Wayne Kramer of the MC5, who had just gotten out of jail when he connected with the band to produce the song.
place where I can park it. A precious stone gleamed in his mouth, and with his left hand pointed south, he told her, you can take it to the market. McSpade would later introduce Rose, Jarvis, and his brother, guitarist Teddy McSpade, who was also a bartender at the Park Inn Tavern, to Rob Hingley. And it was this core group of musicians that made up the very first lineup of the band. McSpade explained to me how the bar acted as an important meeting place for local musicians. People would come in, musicians all hung out at the, at the Park Inn Tavern. There wasn't too many other uh, musician bars at the time, but, uh, you know, you come in, you bullshit, you trade, trade, uh, information and you say, Oh, you know, maybe we ought to, maybe we ought to, uh, get together and jam, you know? Right. And that's, then that's basically how it started. And you, you, know, you feel each other out and you say, Oh, you, that's pretty good. You know, you Hey, listen, you know anybody who plays bass or, or drums? You say, yeah. Uh, it was always face to, it was always face to face and word of mouth. And, uh, it was, yeah, it wasn't as, as uh, antiseptic as it is now, you know, with everybody online and hiding behind a keyboard and shit. I think it's fair to say that the catalyst for the formation of the Toasters and many other well-known American hardcore bands was 171A. Sadly, the story of 171A is not widely known. In September of 1980, the musician Jerry Williams opened up 171A Studio, which was a former glass shop located at 171 Avenue A in the East Village of Manhattan. Williams originally started the space as a place for his North Carolina-based punk band, The Cigarettes, which also included Scott Jarvis, to live in and rehearse in. Williams and Jarvis eventually were the only ones still living there when they transformed the squat into a club, rehearsal space, recording studio. 171A had 15-foot ceilings and was 60 feet long, so the dimensions were similar to CBGB's. Williams put in a stage and a sound booth and threw after-hour parties there that the Cooties often played. So they were well-known in a neighborhood made up of artists, musicians, and creatives. 
Williams was a key figure in the burgeoning early 80s New York hardcore scene as well, recording bands at 171A and doing sound at CBGB's. He also produced records at 171A for the Bad Brains, including their well-known debut, the ROIR Sessions. Williams would also work with Token Entry, Antidote, Reagan Youth, Warzone, The Cro-Mags, Murphy's Law, and more, while Jarvis ended up producing the Beastie Boys' Pollywog Stew EP at 171A. Here's the Beastie Boys performing Egg Raid on Mojo from that EP. A was like a punk rock community center. It put on shows, recorded bands, and screened movies. There was also a record store in the basement. And for a time, in the fall of 1980, 171A booked shows every Friday and Saturday night until a rival club tipped off the New York Fire Department that it was selling liquor without a license. The New York Fire Department closed it down before a New Year's party, so the club was converted into a rehearsal space. It charged 6 to $8 per hour for bands to rehearse and had a gigantic PA system. The origins of the toasters are linked to 171A. Teddy McSpade mentioned to me that the band recorded their first demo at the space. And for this reason, the earliest days of the New York City ska scene are directly connected to the New York City hardcore scene. In fact, the toasters' first live show was in May 1981 opening for the Bad Brains at local club A7. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Skaboom Stories. The book is now available for presale through DeWolf Publishing at DeWolf.com. The first 500 presale orders will receive a free 80-minute CD mix called Ska American Style, courtesy of DJ Chuck Wren and Jump Up Records, which digs deep into the obscure world of privately pressed records, proving that American ska roots were firmly planted during the 80s alternative music underground. Visit DeWolf.com, that's D-I-W-U-L-F.com to order. If you've listened and received some value from this episode, then please help support the podcast for as little as $3 per month on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com backslash Podcast for more information. Thanks and take care.